Um, if you'd like to open your Bibles to Psalm 90, we're finally done with my uh, little Jonah breaks. can move on to something else. Um, psalm 90, I'm getting a little feedback. Psalm 90 um, is a beautiful psalm. There's a lot of them. Um, the Psalter, as we call it, is the place where we can see our own hearts in the lives and mournings and joys of believers before our time. Um, I, I like to call the Psalter the heart, of, the heart of believers. It really just shows us how to respond to God. It shows how others have responded to God, what they remind themselves of, what they pray in times of joy and in times of suffering. And then some have called Psalm 90 the heart of the Psalter. So this is very much an exemplar psalm. Um, interesting thing about this psalm, you'll see in the first verse, it's a prayer of Moses, the man of God. It's like, hmm, what does that mean, man of God? Um, there's sort of this funny thing going on in, in the Old Testament where, where Moses is writing the Old Testament and he calls himself the most humble man <laughs> of his time. And you're like, huh, that's a, that's a strange thing to write. Um, it's, of course, inspired. And you ask yourself, why is, why is he called the man of God? What, what, is, what is this talk? Well, up till now, the Psalms have been mostly David, maybe some Solomon, maybe a few other characters. Um, and this is the only one attributed to Moses way before their time, way before the rest of the Psalms are uh, written and used. And um, why is he called the man of God? Well, there's this, there's this interesting part in Deuteron Deuteronomy where, where Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet for you like me from among you. And he's talking about Jesus, the man of God. So Moses is the man of God of his time. He's the prophet. He's the prophet that all prophets will be judged after him. He's the type. He's the great prophet. And then in the New Testament, Holy, the Holy Spirit affirms through Peter that Jesus is the greater prophet, that Moses was pointing us to the man of God, the greater prophet, the greatest prophet, which is Jesus. And so this is the heart of the man of God as he's seen, as he's seen reality before him. And I'll, re I'll, I'll read through this now. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, um, this psalm is full of your glory. It's full of the heartache that men women can experience as we toil and as we struggle through this fallen world. Um, it shows us our heart. Um, it's, it's, it shows us the raw, the raw feelings we, we suppress, we hide from. But Lord, it also shows us how to cry out for you, to you for deliverance in your Son. It shows us what to ask for. It shows us who you are. It shows us who we are. And it shows us how to respond to those truths. So, Lord, help us to see your Son. Help us to see your Gospel. Help us to see that our lives are short in light of your eternity. And, Lord, help us to, on the other side of reading this psalm together, make our lives count, have peace, know our purpose, lack regret. Amen. So I'm picking up in verse 1. This is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. 
You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So opening this prayer, Moses declares God has been his dwelling place in all generations. And so what does he, what does he mean by that? Well, the context of this psalm is most likely Numbers 19, where the people have just left Egypt, they've seen signs and wonders, they're getting to the promised land, and then because of their unbelief, they're denied access. And that is really bad news. Moses is praying this in light of that truth, sort of that doom. And he's, he's saying that since the days of Abraham, since before we were ever in, in Egypt, or even since the days of Adam, since Adam, for all generations at all times, you have been our dwelling place or our resting place. We've always been a wandering people. That's what Abraham's getting at. We've always been a wandering people in need of a home, in need of rest, in need of satisfaction, and in need of peace. And Moses is saying, Lord, you've been that for us. You've been that place. You've taken care of us. So he's getting at something that's very much at the heart of the people then and very much at the heart of us now because, as all of you should know, this isn't our home either, not just yet. We're, we're strangers in a strange world, and we're, we're, moving, we're, we're journeying through this life through struggles. Though we sin, he shows us mercy, and he treats us like children in that struggle. Moses is expressing God's mercy in light of very bad news. They will not enter God's rest, and this promise will not be fulfilled in that generation. And Moses isn't complaining because he knows that he actually deserves less. And so in verse 2, he exalts God for who he is. Before time began, before anything was created, God was. When I read this verse, I think of when the Lord told Moses his personal name, Yahweh. Translate, I am. This verse shows us that Moses understands what that means. Yahweh is the everlasting one, as we see here. The eternal one. God says, I am. Moses says in verse 2, you are. You are God. We have come to call this the doctrine of self-existence or aseity for you theology nerds. Uh, God has the power of being in and of himself, which explains how anything could exist at all. He has always been and will always be, simply put, he is. Or in the first person, God says, I am. That's what you should be hearing when you hear Yahweh or the great I am. God is the everlasting one. He did not have a beginning and he, did not, he does not have an end. While Moses didn't use English to say God is self-existent, he understood this very clearly, and it was and still is very important for the people of God to know this. Why? 
because it is the main distinction between the creator and their creation, between God and between you. Because as we see in the next set of verses, we are nothing like the holy everlasting one on our own. We certainly had a beginning, and we will certainly have an end. Moses has shown us who God is in comparison. Now he will show us fallen man. And so we move on to the main section, verse 3. Moses said God returns mankind to dust. Just as he made Adam from the dust of the earth, so we, Adam's children, are returned to dust because of the curse over sinners. In fact, God commands our death. Return, O children of Adam. So unlike the everlasting God of the universe, we die. That's the third objective reality Moses has included in his prayer. God has taken care of us up to this point. That's verse 1. God is eternal and self-existent. That's verse 2 and verse 3. Man is mortal, immortal for a reason. God determines that we die due to sin. Spurgeon said it this way, Charles Spurgeon. He said, God resolves and, sin, and man dissolves. We eventually fail and break down, gone from this world. We read, we read that of the curse in our liturgy today. There is no way around it. That's the reality we live under, and Moses is seeing that in the, in the wilderness. And verse 4 speaks to God's perspective as the one outside of time and creation. God is not subject to time as we are, folks. And be careful to pay attention when you hear teachers talk about this. Yes, there is this whole philosophical debate about what is time and how do you define time or is time something we made up and so on and so forth. Uh, Most of us are treating time as something that is real (laughs) um, and a very precious gift from God. In other words, God made time and the, past, and the passing of history, and he's not waiting on things to, be, to play out and, make, and making things up as we all float down the river. God is not subject to time in any way. It, like matter and gravity and people, is clay in his hands. He's, under, he's in control. He's decided it. He is aware of all past events, present and future events, and if there are, <laughs> as if, they are right in front of him in perfect detail. In other words, his ordination of our lives and the end of our lives is perfectly considered along with every other happening in reality. So when you start thinking about self-existence and reality, you start to understand how it's both an incomprehensible truth about an incomprehensible God that is also plainly evident. You can really get mind-boggled by this sort of thing, thinking about eternity. We know that it must be true, but we cannot fathom its depth. So together, verses 3 and 4 show us that God is not limited the way we are limited. He decides our lifetimes in his omniscience. Calvin called this our circuit. We have a start, and we have an end, and it's over. One day we're here, one day completely gone, like a flood taking a beach house away. The beach is as it was before the house. Those who never saw the hut would not think it was ever there. When God takes us from our time here, we are like a dream, he's saying in this next section. What does that mean? We are forgotten like a detail that is hard to remember. What did you dream about last night? Well, I know I had a dream, but I can't remember. (laughs) We are like a sleep that has passed. We go to bed and we wake up as if no time has passed. That's what our circuit's like. And it's it's not it's grim. On its own, it's 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 scary. It's something we we it's something we sort of try to compress down. And then there's the classic biblical analogy in verse six. Each of us is like grass. You'll hear that over and over throughout the Old Testament. We have our day in the sun, but come to, come to the end of our time, and we're dried up, used up, and even in our prime, we are like grass in the, in the sense that as calamity comes, 
We're easily ended. We're easily as uprooted. We're frail. That's what he's getting at. We're frail. We're transient. We're changing, and we have an end. We play our part, and time and mankind moves on without us from generation to generation. We're frail. We are but dust to dust to do to sin. Our time passes like last spring's grass, forgotten, replaced, compared to an unchanging eternal, eternal creator, our lives are like a vapor. And then verse 7 is tricky, and this is where Christians really need to pay attention and not just leave themselves in gloom. Verse 7 says, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your, by your wrath we are dismayed. So do our lives end due to God's anger? Are we frightened by God's fury? Well, yes and no. That depends on where you stand in regard to unbelief. Mankind is generally ended by God's anger. People are generally terrified that he is out there and aware of our evil. Genesis 3 made that clear. The wages of sin is death. New Testament makes that clear as well. Moses has just found out that the current generation he is leading through the desert is doomed. They will not enter the promised land because of their own wickedness and unbelief which is analogous to what unbelief gets man in the end in life. But for believers, the approach of death has changed dramatically. Why? The wrath, that wrath, has been applied to Christ's account. So we are no longer under that wrath in this life now. Death is actually a sanctifying experience for those who have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ with faith and repentance. Moses is talking about what he has witnessed in a fallen world apart from the special work of regeneration, that presence of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a changed person. Keep that in mind as we trek through these verses because it can still make your heart ache. Nevertheless, there is no condemnation for those who are found in Christ. Not now, not later. And so in verse 8 we see, God has set everyone's iniquities before himself. He is aware and concerned with everyone's sin, he knows even that we've managed to hide from everyone else, and so mankind's days pass away under his wrath, and our years come to an end like a sigh, or like a moan of defeat. When I read this verse, along with verses 10 and 11, I think of that great enemy of an aged person, regret. That bitter spirit you can see in others, and easily develop when you start looking back, knowing you had the ability to do better. Or choose, or choose a different path, or suffered for no reason. When we are young, I'm young, 50 years sounds like a long time. Then we are 70 looking back, maybe 80 if we take care of ourselves or have the genes for it, and we think, where is the time gone? What have I actually done? What, what difference did it all make? We can start to allow our memories to be defined by the long years of toil and stress, and the truth is, most people's lives are vastly more toil and trouble than peace. That's the truth of the fallen world, especially those who are not found in Christ. Do not envy the ultra-rich or successful. Why? They live under God's wrath as you once did. They still can't find true peace or a true satisfaction. Everything they've built will be regrettable if it is not for Christ's name and church. That's scary, right? Someone very successful and very happy in this life could regret the whole thing looking back. Yes, be grateful that you are here and the Lord is not going to let that happen to you. That's a promise. And then we have verse 11. 
Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who really considers God's wrath towards sin? Who really knows his anger? Moses is, is, Moses is implying none of us. None of us. The truth is, none of us will ever truly fathom God's hatred for perversion and evil. A hot topic today is hell. It's absent from most preaching. It's played down. And even among evangelicals, the practical norm is that it's rare for someone other than a Nero or a Hitler to be punished that severely. People ask, is hell really an eternal lake of fire? How can it be both a lake of fire and a place of darkness and gnashing of teeth? You know, fire, light, doesn't really add up. Brothers and sisters, if you pity unbelievers in your life, in your vicinity, you will make a point to graciously have them know that hell is not simply a lake of fire. It is so much worse than that. Those, were, those whose end is hell would give anything for hell to simply be a lake of fire. Moses' question has an implied and definite answer. No one considers the wrath of God for the terrible and great force that it is. We cannot fathom it, and we certainly cannot bear it. So thanks be to God that he sent someone who does understand and bear it. Christ drank that cup. Christ received that wrath, that fierce hatred for sin unto himself. So in light of that reality of who God is toward fallen man, and in light of Moses knowing fallen man's frame and need, he asks for a series of pleas that we see in this last section, verses 12 through 17. Verse 12 reads, Teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Or if that's confusing to you, teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. In the Old Testament, the heart is the self. It's the mind, it's the heart, it's the thought life, it's the emotions, it, it's you. It's not simply your feelings. In other words, Moses is saying, show us our frame so that we might understand our life's purpose. Relieve our toil and distress through the renewing of our minds. Set us free from the vanity and the arbitrary motion of life. If you've been walking with the Lord for a serious amount of time, you have likely mourned the time you spent before you confessed your need for Christ and put your faith in him. What a waste. You have likely thought the unregenerate man is also prone to subdue the approach of death by any means possible. Distractions, drunkenness, you can see these things in people if you know what is behind unbelief. We are terrified to think about anything after today if we don't have Christ anchoring our souls to him. But if we have cast ourselves on Christ, we have death accounted for, and thus we can live wisely. Paul calls Jesus the very wisdom of God. It is knowing Christ, it is in knowing Christ, that we can rightly number our days, know our place, move with confidence that we are doing what is right, that our lives are not a waste, and we can, we can live as if we will die, and thus we are humbled to live godly lives. We have the humility needed to kill our worldly ambitions. We say, I've got 30 or 40, maybe 50 years left, and I'm going to commit them to this church. When I die, my financial situation, my academic accolades, my name will be gone. I'm laying my life down for Christ and his church, and in the end, I will be with him, and I will abide in him. That's a heart of wisdom. Those are days that are numbered. Throughout this prayer, Moses has been putting forth essential truths that inform how we live wisely, how we live for Christ in light of the gospel. God is eternal and cares for us. We have promises from him 
that inform my living. He's kept us alive thus far. (laughs) And we know about how much time we have to live out his will for our lives before the body fails. Our lives are short, and we can very easily spend the one short life we have the wrong way. We can regret how we spend our time if we are foolish. A pastor said it this way, we shouldn't be afraid of failure. We should be afraid of succeeding at the, right, at the wrong thing. We should rather fail at the right thing. We should rather fail at doing this than succeed at doing that out there. We can regret how we spend our time if we're foolish. For those of us who are young, we best hear this and remember, don't simply busy yourself and then retire when you can. <laughs> you will regret that, even if you come out looking successful. Our culture, that was a tough one, doesn't understand this. More and more people are actually waiting until their 40s or even 50s to get married for the first time, on purpose. <laughs> Everyone knows we have a high divorce rate, we have a high rate of cohabiting couples who don't marry, a high rate of abortion, all serious problems. We also have a high rate of people who do not want children. We have a high rate of people who work and work and spend and spend and vacation and die with nothing left behind. We have a high number of children who have actually rarely had a meal at dinner time with their whole family. This isn't just a call to make the most of your time. It's not just supposed to busy you. It's a reminder to ask, am I spending my time the right way? Do I sacrifice for the things that count? When I'm gone, what difference will I have made? If God is willing to teach us to number our days through Christ and Him crucified, we can be relieved of the great distress of of a wasted and worrisome life. Moses cries with all who are discontented, Return, O Lord, how long? How long must we suffer dissatisfaction? How long are we going to wander around? He asks for pity, as, we, as should we, lest we fall into self-pity. Not that long, when we account for the eternity, we are promised are our sufferings. The, our life is not that long. Our sufferings are not that long. Paul says, I do not count the trouble of this world to be comparable with the glory to come. The Lord will always give us what we need to make it through, and the and the beautiful orderly part comes after. <laughs> we enter his complete peace after this life. And that ascension starts when we put our faith in the Savior. And then Moses comes to his critical plea in verse 14. He asks that God satisfy us in the morning with steadfast love. That way we may have joys all our days. And so a life devoted to Christ can flip this toil we saw in these other, in these other verses. It can flip it around, and it can make our life satisfactory. We can have peace. And that's what we all want. That's what you're after. When when you're doing something, whatever you're doing, you're looking to be satisfied one way or another. We want a life and a state of being that experiences fullness and hope. Confidence that nothing is coming away to push us back down. We want to be raised up to a higher standard of life. We want up out of a fallen world into a place that is complete. We are looking to be whole, and Moses knows that if it's going to happen, it will be given from above. This short life will not get you to that place of satisfaction. Nothing you can do about that. You will suffer between now and your death. Moses has this as a guarantee, and we pray along with him, Lord, be with us as we run the race. If we are to die, be merciful to us on the way. Oh God, give us the strength to face this fallen world until you call us home. 
He asks that our sufferings be redeemed in the next verse. This is very reminiscent of Job's plea. Redeem our suffering. After the darkness of this life, show us the light that we may live, still live, as we still have breath. Let the last word be joy. Let the last word be hope. Let the last word be divine love. If we have those things in our frame of mind, the cares of this world will not crush us. God took away the promised land for Moses' Moses' generation, and he did not take their lives in that moment. That's grace. He gave them ample time to turn to him that many would be saved. I see it this way. Moses asked for the main course in light of his people being denied dessert. In their time, he still approached God to ask for the mercy of his presence and favor. If he inflicts his children with great sorrow, that's you and me, he follows it with great joy that is equal to that distress. It is also very different from that sorrow in that it will last forever. (laughs) This life contains suffering in a fallen world. The next life is infinitely longer and abundantly more joyful. Remember that as you're going through this world, that the Lord's sanctifying you through your sufferings. He's not doing it to you in wrath. When you find yourself despairing, always remember that you have been prom- what you've been promised in, cr- in Christ, and this life's woes will melt off your mind. He asks that we see him do the work, and that our children see him work, and that he would be favorable to us. Establishing our work, in other words, we've relied on you this long, now work through us, Lord. Lord, make our time count. Help us to live lives that glorify Christ and edify the church. When you know that your children <laughs> will know God's work, because of your suffering or because he works through you, trials become very bearable. If you know that he's making a better life for your children through you, you can put up with a lot. (laughs) In him we live and move and have our being. Daryl got you there. You know that one. Know that it is him working glory into you and that he will not fail. He will get you ready for his presence. It's him that works through us. It's him that's enabling us. We stand upon him to do the work he calls us to do. And he will surely fulfill it through us. We know that God does not change. And when he gives the confidence that we abide in Christ, we face death with confidence. We commit our lives to his glory, knowing that it counts. We trust him with our lives. We trust him with our suffering, knowing he will wipe away every tear, If he is the one working through us, he won't fail to deliver. Remember that. Our bodies will fade like grass, but our fruits will last through the fire like gold. As will our souls to be reunited to our redeemed bodies when he comes back and we are raised unto eternal life. So how do we apply this? How do we apply this message? Number one, number your days according to the objective truths of reality and scripture. God is, God has preserved you this far, you will die, barring Christ's return in your lifetime. Tomorrow is not promised, you do not have God's complete perspective on all of history. You do have his essential perspective in scripture. Christ alone took the full wrath of God's fury unto himself, only he knows what that is like. While you suffer in this time, the rejoicing of the next life will vastly outweigh the grievances of this life. Live by these truths. They will set you free from the toil and regret of this fallen world. 
And number two, know that your toil is not in vain. God smiles on being fruitful and multiplying. Your parenting, your raising up of children in the faith is the most serious work you can do. It counts. And the Lord smiles on that as vital and beautiful worship toward him, if done from a heart that is cast upon Christ. There's sort of this thing going on, even in the church, that pastors have called the DINKS, which is an acronym for Double Income No Kids. And that just, and ironically enough, that's what my wife and I are doing right now. (laughs) Um, Not by, we're just young and haven't had any kids yet, but the idea is, is that we're putting off having kids and we're putting off starting our family so that we can raise up a bunch of money and sort of do the things we want to do. Just know that if you're wrestling with that, like all young people have to wrestle today with because it's the main culture, that will end in loneliness. You will be so lonely in your old age. When you're older, you'll want children and family around you. That's what will count. And you won't, you would rather be joyful and poor and have family than rich and decrepit and lonely, right? The, the culture right now for young evangelicals isn't thinking that way. Know that the Lord smiles on having children and that that will be the joy. That will be your joy. That's important. If you're a stay-at-home mom right now, God smiles on that. That's serious work. That's the work that shows we're numbering our days. We're putting, we're putting a heritage forward. We're raising our kids in the faith. That's beautiful. It's not the only way. I'm not saying you have to do that. <laughs> but I'm saying that it certainly is serious work and it counts. So remember that. And know that right now counts forever. That's three. What we're doing here in this church is what Christians are called to do. It's not always flashy. <laughs> it's at times mundane. Uh, but it's the life that Christ died for. He died so that we do this right here, right there, right now. Know that what we are doing here is special and it's not in vain. Number your days and know that the Lord has plans for our church, for his name. He's the one working through us and everything will come together in his timing. And so just remember verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Help us to know what our life should be in light of who Christ is. God reveals himself in the word. He reveals himself in this psalm. We know the gospel. What does that reflect on to us? Who should we be now? Make your days count, but know that if you're doing the simple things, the Lord thinks that counts. <laughs> the Lord will make that, t- you won't regret that. The Lord will always make your life turn out for good for those who listen to his word. At times you can feel like, what am I doing? But you keep your eyes on the simple things of Scripture. And at the end of it all, you'll see that the Lord made it count. Because it was his work anyway. In preparation for Reformation Day tomorrow, if those of you who don't know, it happens to be Halloween as well. But that's the day Luther put the 95 Thesis on the door. I thought I would close with a sort of classic saying from Luther. This is how he numbered his days. My, uh, our pastor, before we came here, the one that did our wedding, um, he closed our wedding in this way. He said... Um, Luther had two days on his calendar. Today, now, the now, and that day, when Christ returns, and when our king answers that prayer of return, O Lord, how long? When he answers that prayer, and he comes back for us. Two days on his calendar. We don't worry too much about what we can't control. We don't, we don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will handle itself. But we, we live, and we move, and we breathe, and we do things 
We have today, we've, given, we've been given right now, and we've been given that day as a promise. If you think that way, decision-making becomes much easier. You will not look back on 30, 40 years and think, why did we do that? <laughs> you will look forward to sufferings, the toil of work, doing things you don't love. And you will say, well, I know why I'm doing it. I know why I get up out of bed and do it anyway. The, Lord, the Lord's using my work for my family, for my church, for the elect that haven't, re- haven't responded to the gospel yet. We have those things as a guarantee. We can make today count. And we know he's coming back. If we can focus on that, our days will be full of peace and purpose, not of toil and regret. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, there's a, there's a harsh reality in this psalm, one that scares us, one that makes us think our lives may be regrettable at the end, that we might waste our time, that we might, that we might uh, continue in sin before you. But Lord, we know that for those of us who cast ourselves on Christ, those of us who respond to your call, Lord, you don't waste our lives. Our lives are not a waste. Our lives may be simple. We are not the great of the world. But Lord, you don't require that of us. What's beautiful to you is a contrite heart, a heart of wisdom and of mercy, a heart of grace that reflects the character of your son, that reflects who you are. Lord, that is what you ask of us. That is what you gift us with. You enable us to do that. So Lord, I ask that as we leave this place, Lord, help us to know that you are working in our lives. Our life is not in vain. We do struggle. We do toil in this life. We certainly suffer. But Lord, when we look to Christ, we can have a peace knowing that your promises lead to an invincible joy, that our lives do count, that our days are numbered, that you've numbered our days, and that as we look to your truth, we can number our days. We can have a heart of wisdom. When we have our heart on Christ, other cares melt away. We don't worry about proving anything to anyone. Lord, your truth sets us free. Renew our minds. Help us to number our days that we may be with you, the everlasting one for all eternity. Amen.